up for you. We'll be in John chapter 13. If you want to head that direction. It's good to see everybody here tonight. Continuing a series uh, through different kinds of relationships and uh, tonight we'll sort of pick up where left last week left off. Um, looking at our connections and interactions with one another uh, within the church family. In John chapter 13, <clears throat> Jesus has, uh, at this point, he has gathered the disciples together. He has, um, there's, they've taken their last supper together. He has washed their feet. He has been betrayed by Judas. And uh, he's essentially giving his, like, some final instructions to them before he leaves. And um, it's the beginning of a couple of chapters that are known as the farewell discourse. And this is just kind of the last time he's with them before... Everything kind of just goes crazy uh, when he is arrested and crucified and everything. And so this is a very um, close and tender moment for this group of friends. And uh, Jesus is the only one that knows what's about to happen. You know, like the other ones, they can't really seem to, to grasp what he is saying. And uh, it's just a very big moment. And he has a lot of profound things to say. We're going to focus on uh, starting in verse 31. It says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You, are also, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So let's just take a minute and, and kind of walk through just that paragraph. Um, we're going to ultimately land in this new commandment that he gives to his disciples, but the context is very important. Um, verse 31, uh, Jesus tells them, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. So you have, he's kind of giving them this behind-the-scenes look at what is happening within the Trinity, uh, how God is glorified through Jesus, who is God, and Jesus is glorified through God, who is God. And there's this moment, there's this, all this glory that is happening, almost as if he's... He's assuring them that what's, a, what's about to take place in the next couple of days is going to make you doubt a lot of things. But you need to know that there's a lot of honor and support and oneness that's happening uh, between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And, uh, and that's a very important thing to keep in mind. The next verse is kind of confusing. Uh, it says, verse 32, If God is glorified in Him, meaning Jesus, God will also glorify him in himself, that Jesus will be glorified in God, uh, and then glorify him at once. Uh, that 
try to diagram that one at some point and figure out what he's saying. Uh, I think he's trying to help them understand that that the the glory and the the display of God's power that is happening in that moment and is going to happen in the in the coming moments is is it's all so interconnected uh, that they probably aren't going to really understand it. And so they're just needing to, under, to really kind of try to grasp the fact that, that there's a lot of focus on the power of God and a lot of attention that's about to come God's way. Because he goes on to say in the next verse, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. He, he's about to go uh, away from the earth. He knows that he's going to, uh, to die. He's going to be raised from the dead. He's going to be here for 40 days, and then he's going to ascend to the Father. He knows that he is not going to be with them permanently. And even though he's told them, they just, you know, they're still not really catching on to it. And he's like, no, you don't understand. I'm only going to be here a little bit longer. Um, it's, it's like one of those moments where you have someone's like last words. You know? um, they can't really understand that very much. Uh, there was, I've, I think I've talked, talked about this before, but when my... Dad's dad was, uh, was in very poor health, and it was at the end of his life. He called a family gathering, and the point of the gathering was for him to hand the inheritance to each of his kids. And uh, so he like, got everyone together into a room, and he just called the kids up one at a time and just handed them an envelope. And he didn't really say anything. It was just like, here's yours, here's yours, and here's yours. And he said, and I want you to all open it. I want you to compare numbers. To make sure everybody got the same thing. <laughs> and, and to us, that was really funny. It's not funny to you. But to us, it was very funny. Because it was very important to him that all the kids know you were all treated fairly. He wanted to see that transfer. He wanted to see that happen. And I remember sitting there you know, with, with my brothers and my cousins and stuff. And we were watching this happen. And I'm like, I feel like I'm watching a, a scene in the Bible or something. Where, where the old patriarch gathers everyone together and begins to like, say, this is what's going to happen. And, and, and he had a few words of wisdom for us and that kind of stuff. And you just got the sense as a family, you're like, this, this is one of the last times like, we'll get to do this. You know? And so we were really, really focused on what he was saying. And I remember just wanting to absorb every single moment because I, you, everyone just knew this is one of the last times this will, will happen. I think the disciples don't realize this necessarily, but Jesus knows it. And so he's telling them, I'm not going to be here for much longer. Like you, don't, you may not understand this. In John chapter 8, he had had a conversation with a, a group of uh, Jewish men, and he was telling them the same thing. And they're real confused. They're like, well, is he going to take his own life? Or where is, he, is he leaving town? Where is he going to go? And and he tries to explain to them, and he tries to explain to his disciples that he's going to a place they cannot go. That there's a separation between earth and heaven that uh, is, is not for us yet, for those two things to come together. And so he's handing down like the, like some of his last, most important instructions. Um, he says, you will seek me, just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And so maybe he has their attention now. He says, hey, I'm, I'm about to go to a place that you cannot go. So look, look at me. My dad used to always say that when we were kids. We had to look him in the eye when he, when he was being serious. He was like, look at me. Look me in the eye. And uh, you knew it was time to pay attention. And Jesus hands down this new commandment. What's strange is that for like all the way back to the book of Exodus and, and Deuteronomy and all the, like the beginnings of the Bible, they had operated under these two commandments. 
to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Like that was ingrained in them. It's, it was just this normal thing. And then Jesus says, I have a new commandment. Like I'm going to, almost like, uh, you know, like, hey, we're going to add this thing in here that, that should not belong. And so they probably were paying attention a lot. And he says, I have a new commandment to give to you, that you love one another. That was real normal. Like, oh, that's just the second commandment, you know. If Jesus said, I have a new commandment for you, that you love one another, in their minds, they would have thought, that's not new. There's nothing new about that. We've been trying to do that for a long time. We're not great at it, but we've been trying. The new part is what he says after, after that. He says, a new, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. It's not that they're supposed to love one another. It's now it's, it's how you're supposed to love one another. So if you're taking this, this commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, if you think of commandment one as being one that is vertical, you know, you love God, and the commandment two is horizontal, you love your neighbor. And if love your neighbor as yourself is taken in its true context, it's, it's that you love everyone as though they're your family, as they're one of you. Um, then this takes on a different kind of thing because Jesus has been the embodiment of what it means to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and the embodiment of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. He's been modeling for, like this for them as their rabbi for like three years. They've followed him everywhere. They've listened to every word that he said except when he would sneak off and pray and they couldn't find him. They heard all the sermons, they, they watched all the miracles, they heard all the little illustrations, they heard all of it. They've watched him model it and put it on display over and over and over again. And now he's saying, I know you've been watching me and you've been listening to me and you've been paying attention. I'm about to leave you and all you're going to have is your memories of me. You're not going to face a situation and wonder what to do and look over at me and then know I'm just going to do what he's doing. Now your model is going away and now you have to figure out what to do. And so here's this, here's this broad stroke, one big umbrella idea for you to exist underneath and how to interact with one another. The same way that I loved you, you are to love one another. You take that vertical love and then you just apply that to one another, and that's, that's your rule of thumb. That's your standard now. Jesus took the, the first commandment and the second commandment, and he like, just kind of blew them up into this like, real-world example of how we're supposed to treat one another. And then, the next verse, like, that's a pretty big, like, pretty big way of thinking. Um, and then he says in verse 35, "...by this all people will know that you're my disciples." If you have love for one another. It's like this is going to be the identifying mark of people who are a part of this family. Is that they all love each other in this same way. And that way is the way that Jesus loves us. It's how the new covenant family is identified. We've talked about connections with each other and what's the bond that exists between us and Jesus prays for oneness and unity and that equality and, and, and distinction and support and perfect love you see in the Trinity for us to model that. And now when it comes to those interactions, how are we supposed to treat one another? 
It's supposed to literally be the same thing that we see that Jesus does to his disciples. The same way that he loves people. We're just supposed to fall in line with that. And this might be the most like redundant sermon series in the history of sermons. Because I feel like I say the same thing every week. But what's fascinating to me at least is that every relationship, when I start to study it and dig down into it, it all comes back to the same stuff. Like, parenting is not going to be different than marriage. It's not going to be different than friendship. It's not going to be different than, than church family relationships, than blood family relationships, than relationships with your neighbors, and relationships with people that don't know Jesus. All of those things are all doing the same thing. They're all just reflecting God's relationships. And that's how it's going to work. But keep coming back. I mean, I don't like skip out for the rest of the semester. Like, keep coming back. But, but that's what that's I think what God is trying to like embed more deeply in us is that's the standard. Like, He is who we look to. And so it it got me thinking. Okay, well, what what does that mean? Like, what are what are some of the ways that we see Jesus love His disciples? Like, what is what is it that we know to imitate? Uh, I have four points here. Two of them are kind of just review from the last couple of weeks. So just, you know, it'll be okay. And then the last two are brand new. You've never heard them before. So, um, I'm sorry. I'm not being very funny tonight. Or y'all aren't laughing very much. I don't know. It's probably, probably the first one. Okay. Um, let, me, let me just run through four of the ways. So Jesus says, Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. What should come to mind? One of the things that we talked about is found in John 1, 14. Jesus loves them through presence. So the first part of that verse says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus does not love his disciples from afar. In fact, I mean, he left heaven to come to them. And so just as he has loved them, they are to love one another. Presence is a huge one. The ministry of presence cannot be, um, it really, it's indescribable whenever you think about that. That when, when we are with each other, in whatever the context is, that you're sitting there with, with another person made in the image of God. If they are a Christian, then you're sitting with someone who Christ lives within. And they're just sitting across the table from you at a coffee shop. And God wants to use that simple presence to remind us of his nearness. You know, and that he cares about you. If you've ever been in a difficult spot, and you reach out to some people and you let them know, like, hey, I'm having a tough time with this. And, you know, and people, you know, they'll text you back, they'll email you back, they'll call you. But when someone, like, when someone's like, hey, you want me to come over? You're like, yeah, that would that would probably be good. When they walk in the door, God's like, yeah, see, presence. Jesus loved his disciples in their presence. And it's so simple that we're just to imitate that. We just need to be together. And so we gather on Sundays, and we gather in community groups, and we gather in other ways in between now and then. And if we will let him do it, he'll use those simple gatherings to remind us that he's with us. That he's not far away, that he's not forgotten about us. It's a very simple way to imitate Jesus, just show up. Like, be there with people. 
Not only are we reminded when, when we're with them, we're also reminded when they leave. The same thing we're reminded of whenever we scatter out at the end of this service tonight is we all go our separate ways, but the presence of Christ remains. And so the gathering of his saints reminds us of his, his presence. The scattering of the saints reminds us of his omnipresence, that he's with us everywhere that we go. So God's all about being with his people, and he looks at us and says, you guys need to be together. Don't forsake the gathering. It's very clear. Let's gather together. Encourage one another. Sing together. Pray together. Carry each other's burdens. There's all these one another's all throughout the Bible. And it's all about our presence in each other's lives. So that's the first thing that we see. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us that we, as fellow believers, are to be just physically present with each other. Um, and with physical presence can come this holistic presence uh, that just means a, just means a ton. The second point uh, is also in verse fourteen. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace, full of truth. That's the second way that we see Jesus loving. First one was presence. The second one is grace and truth. I mean, everywhere He went. People didn't have to earn his uh, approval or his love or his compassion or, or, or anything like that. Like, it's this, this amazing way that, that God just doesn't really care if we're acting right or acting wrong. You know, if we're keeping all the rules or if we're breaking the rules or whatever it is. That it's not about trying to earn something. That God just wants to do what is best for his kids. He does what's for your good and what's for my good. And he's full of... Of this of grace, but he's also full of truth that he loves us enough to help us stay dialed into reality. I don't know is is American Idol still on TV? You don't know either. Okay, cool. Um, but do you remember like if you ever watched American Idol, they found out very quickly that people's favorite part of the show was the auditions, and they found out that they were super high ratings whenever they would put awful singers. On TV, like it was like, and everyone wanted to tune in and watch that, and then you kind of maybe would watch the end or uh, end of the series or something. But you know, these folks that would come in and they would they would walk into the room, you know, and there's the judges sitting there, and they would be like, okay, what are you going to sing? And they would be like, I'm going to sing Mariah Carey's Vision of Love, you know, like you know, super attainable song that any average person can sing. And and then they would they would just start singing, and it would be. And at first, when they walked in as the viewer, you made up your mind right away, like. This person is going to be awesome, or this person is going to be terrible. And sometimes you're right, and sometimes you're wrong, and that was a part of it. But they would put just the worst people, and uh, and also the best people, as like the two extremes. And they always, like the really bad singers, had friends outside who were like, "Girl, you going to Hollywood? You know it, you know." And and championing them, you know. And the, if they would come out and they weren't going to Hollywood, they were all crying, like, "They don't know. What does Paula know? She don't know anything." And and that kind of stuff. And it was. It was just this game back and forth, and it was so. You remember watching it, and you felt so bad that they were exploiting these people just for ratings and for laughs and stuff. And there was a pastor who said he used that as an example. He said, "This is what happens when people don't have friends." And what he was meaning is, real friends tell you the truth and say, "You know what." That's probably not the song you should sing. <laughs> Let's talk more about that. 
that they have that they will that they will help you to know what the truth is, and the truth is what is tied in with reality, and the reality is you are a bad singer, you know? That that's what real friends will do. And so Jesus comes to his disciples and he loves them enough to say, Hey, um, you're gonna die in your sins. If but you don't have to die in your sins. He comes to them and says, hey, you've been, you've been born into a kingdom that is lying to you, and I'm here to tell you what is true and what is real. That he loved the woman at the well enough to like, just kind of read her mail about stuff. He, he loved the, the, the woman who came in and was washing his feet for him, and everyone was making fun of her. He loved her enough to shut them down and tell her the truth. He loved the woman who was caught in the act of adultery enough to shut the crowd down and to tell her the truth. We see it over and over again with his disciples and with complete strangers. It's like, this is what is true. That's how he loved them. And so what do we do? We enter into these relationships within a church and we, we need to be full of grace and full of truth just like he was. That we're not having to earn, earn these relationships. It's not a, a behavior situation that determines if you're in good standing or bad standing within the church. And all this kind of drama that's there. That, that this is the most gracious place that you can think of to be. And that people will just flat out tell you the truth about God and about yourself and about what you're believing and how that corresponds with, with what the Bible says, that that is, that is a way that we love one another because Jesus loved his disciples that way. And so that's part of why we do community groups, and that's why, part of why we gather together and why we have marriage discipleship and why we started doing some parenting things and why we did the summer groups the way that we did, that, that that's something that we have to do together um, not because, oh, that's what makes a healthy church. It makes a healthy church because it's imitating how Jesus loved his disciples. And so we're trying to go back to the original. So the first point, presence. The second point, um, grace and truth. The third point, if you want to flip over to Hebrews, um, you can go there or you can just wait. It'll be on the screen magically. Um, the third point is uh, is that... God has loved them by making some promises. Hebrews chapter 8. That these are covenant promises that he has made to them. Starting in verse 6. It says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry... That is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. He finds fault with them when he says, Okay, so let's hold up one second. So a covenant is like it is this relational agreement. It's, it's not a contract. Contracts are impersonal. Uh, covenants are made between people or between nations in the Bible, between tribes and clans and individuals and uh, husbands and wives and friends and church members. Uh, this is, this is, it is like you can organize the whole Bible around these five different covenants that God has made with people. Um, and so God enters into these relational agreements 
And he sets the terms. And so he's very clear, you do this, and I will do this. Um, and, and so throughout the Old Testament, there's this, this kind of broad idea that there's this old covenant. And he f- finds fault with Israel because they're unable to keep the covenant. And no matter how that covenant, uh, no matter what adjustments they make, they're just unable to keep it. And so the covenant in the Old Testament comes, comes with this like, big idea that God says, okay, here's, here's how you're going to live. And he writes down the, the, the ten things they need to do on these stone tablets, and um, they're unable to do them. So basically he's like, here, here are the rules, try to keep these, and they just can't. Over and over and over again, they can't. But they think that they can, but they cannot, and it's just this kind of back and forth thing. And, um, and so God has done this uh, for a number of reasons. Some of it is to keep the to keep society from just going absolutely bonkers. You know, He's like, I'm gonna put I'm gonna put some I'm gonna put some levees up, okay? Because otherwise, like this this river is just gonna go wild. So I'm gonna put some levees up. I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep my people um, from just destroying one another. So even just attempting to keep the rules is going to kind of help show you where things are. But I'm also, I, you aren't convinced that you need a, like divine help to help you with this internal brokenness. You don't, like you as Israel don't understand that. So um, I'm going to, basically I'm going to give you ten rules. You can even reduce those down to two. And like we'll see how long it takes you to realize that you need like God to step in and help you. Because you just can't do it on your own. And so that's this old covenant. And so this passage talks about this new covenant with these better promises. So Jesus comes, and he comes to bring this new, new arrangement. Because Israel, I guess, I guess, eventually realized, okay, the problem is not my external actions. The problem is where it's coming from internally. Um, I need deep internal redemption of my soul. Because I just can't, I, we just can't get it right. And so Jesus comes, the word is made flesh and dwelt among them. And Jesus comes and says, this is, this is the new covenant in my blood. And these are the new terms of the deal that's going to happen. But this time, the reason why it's on better terms and better promises is because of what he says next. Uh, all right, that was long. Okay. Um, verse 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So he describes a covenant that is not external and written on stones. It is internal and written on the minds and hearts of his covenant people. So this new covenant is built on better promises because now he's the one that's going to internally empower the efforts to love him and to love one another. 
That the problem was internal, not external, but the people thought it was external, not internal. And so you have to become convinced, usually by trying over and over and over again, to earn his love and his approval and his affection. And you realize it's not about my behavior being right. It's about the fact that I need an internal fix. And Jesus is the one who's come to do that. And so he doesn't just come to do that and, you know, that's that. He comes to do that in the context of this covenant, of this promise. And so he says, um, I'm going to write my, like these new promises, I'm going to write those things on your mind and on your heart. This is going to be an internal covenant that transforms your life from the inside out. Um, And I'm going to, like, literally live inside of you to empower your efforts. And so you will learn to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. And you will learn to love your neighbor as yourself. And you can enter into this relationship with your like uh, fellow brothers and sisters, and you can love them as Jesus loved them, because I am inside of you, and I am guaranteeing it. Like I am making you the promise that it will happen. Just let me. Just let me do it. Just, just trust me. Devote yourselves to the right things. Pursue holiness. Pursue life in a Christ-centered community. Do what the Bible says. Like read it, study it, memorize it. Let the Spirit speak to you. Pray. Like all these things that we're doing, it's all this this internal covenant power that is happening. And so Jesus loves his his disciples by making a commitment to them. When when it comes time to him to do the, the Last Supper, he breaks the bread. And he passes the cup around. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Like, this is happening. And it's better because he guarantees it. He has made commitments and promises. That's how he loved them. Full of grace and truth, in their presence, he looks at them and says, I promise. And you have the Spirit as a guarantee. So what do we do for one another? We make commitments to each other. Like, how do we love each other the way that Jesus loved his disciples? We, we commit to doing this together. Our membership here, like, uh, churches all have membership, like, ways that they do that. And, and there are lots of reasons for that, and I don't have time to get into it. But we do a covenant membership. And we have a covenant that's five paragraphs long. And it it's, talks about our commitments to God and our commitments to each other and our commitments to the church. And it is ridiculously impossible whenever you read it. In our own strength, that is. Because when God is living inside a room full of people, and they are humble, and they are teachable, and they are open-handed, and they are devoted to the Lord and devoted to each other, there's a lot of crazy, amazing things that will happen. And so it's not like, like you ever like see somebody around town or whatever, and you're like, oh, I went to high school with that person. Like, you're like, okay, well, you sat in, a, in the same building as them, and you maybe had some classes with them, and you might be Facebook friends with them, but, but there's not like this bond, you know, when you see them and you're like, I went to high school with that person, you know, like it's like, eh, whatever. It's, it's just, it's, you just went to high school with them. There are some people who that's the same way they approach, like they're church people. It's like, no, I go, I go to church with that guy. It's like, well, you don't really, that doesn't move you deeply, does it? You know, it's just like, no, no, I go, I go to church with them, whatever. I remember being at, uh, when I was at Parkview, and there were, you know, there were hundreds of people coming through there, and I was on staff, and 
Like there would be times when it would happen happen to me, but it really happened to the the senior pastor a lot, where he would he would bump into people like at Sam's or something. They'd be like, "I just want you to know how I mean, you're just like the best pastor. I just love that you're my pastor and all this kind of stuff." And they would walk away. He'd be like, "I have no idea who that person is," you know. That there has to be this interconnectedness that happens within your church family, and when you're in covenant with people, when you have looked them in the eye, metaphorically, and said, "I promise." To do these things. I'm going to devote myself to the Lord. I'm going to devote myself to you. I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to, like, whatever it takes. And I'm going to live an open life to let you walk with me when I'm struggling with stuff. Like, we're going to, we're going to have that kind of openness and interconnectedness because we can make promises to each other. Because Jesus empowers those promises. And when he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, and I'm going to make it happen. So I'm going to empower you to do that. So how in the world can we all put our hands in the middle and say, hey, I promise that we will walk together no matter what struggles or victories come our way. Nothing is going to make us walk away from you. How, how can 150 people make that commitment to each other? Because of Jesus. That's, that's how I know. That's how you know. That's, that's what we are a part of. We cannot just have this sort of bond. It's like, no, I went to high school with them. Oh, I went to church with them. Oh, I went to whatever with them. No, that, those are my, that's my family member. And even if, even if you don't have to know each other very well, it's fine. Do you understand, though, the power of a gathering like this? Like, we're, we're going to have a membership class very soon. And if you want to come into this covenant, our whole covenant is about other people coming into the covenant. We've been working on, you know, on stuff for Zachary and maybe planning a church there. And this morning we, we went through our covenant you know, and been trying to liken it to like, getting married. Like, that's what it should be like. It's like, no, I think that God, God has originated this and he's called us into this special covenant relationship. And these are the vows that we're going to make to each other. And by his grace, we'll be able to walk in that until we die. Like That's marriage. That's church like church covenant, that should be friendship. That should be all those things together. And unfortunately, we live, we live in a world that doesn't put all those things equally, but the Bible doesn't really differentiate a whole lot. If you're in covenant, you're in covenant. And so if Jesus loved his disciples by making committed promises to them, then that's a way that we love one another is by saying, like, hey, I'm not in this casually. Like Jesus was like, I'll die for this to happen for you. I and mean, hopefully it never comes to that for us, honestly. I hope that that never is the thing for us. But are we willing to be like covenant-level committed to one another? Um, that would be loving each other as he loved us. I'm just saying. That's what our model would demonstrate for us and has demonstrated to us. Presence, grace and truth, covenant promises. The fourth thing um, is self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice. It's tied to agape love. Uh, or agape means love. But it's tied to agape. And um, it is this pure love that is willing to sacrifice whatever it takes for the good of, of someone else. It's the kind of love that we see God have toward us. It's the kind of love that we see have, that God have between the Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's the kind of love that He has begun in us among one another, and is continuing to fan into flame, uh, especially when we let him do it. So in uh, John 15, 
as a part of the farewell discourse. We've already talked about how he prayed for oneness in John 17. And in terms of us loving one another as he loved us, this is a part of it as well. He says, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this. Like That's this ultimate thing of, like, I would lay my life down for you. Now, is he speaking literally? Well, in his case, yes, he is. In our case, like I said, I hope not, but... Is, is there a willingness to sacrifice for one another? I mean, from the incarnation to the way he lived his life and eventually laid it down, I mean, he, he, Jesus models this kind of love for us in countless ways. He was constantly, constantly looking at what is best for these disciples. What is, you know, as a group, what is best for them individually? What is best for, what is best for John or Peter? What is best for Judas? Hello. What is, what is best for this hillside full of people who are seeking the truth? What's best for this stranger? What's best for this Pharisee? What's best for, you know, on and on and on. And he was like, I'll do, I'll do whatever is best in that case. And so his self-sacrifice is modeled in the incarnate. I mean, he left heaven for us. And the way he lived his life and eventually laid down his own life for us. And so that's how he loved his disciples. And so that is what we have inherited as our standard, is whatever you need, uh, I'm willing to do that. And so to me, this kind of community is one that's willing to say no to some things so that you can say yes to some things. Like, will we love one another to that, like in that kind of way of saying, okay. Whatever, whatever you need, let me, let me rearrange some things. Let me talk to some people. Let me kind of work it out because you need something and, uh, and I need to be there for you because I'm in covenant with you. This co- full of grace and truth, in-person covenant that we have made together. And so self-sacrifice, that, that's, that's how Jesus loved them. And so we are in this growth process as disciples where we're learning how to do that. Now, probably, for those of you who are parents, you probably have learned that in really specific ways, um, like over the course of your parenthood, of what self-sacrifice really means. And I'm sure sometimes it's been really easy, and sometimes it has probably been really difficult. And maybe you've succeeded, and maybe sometimes you've failed. But I bet you've just learned a ton about what it means to sacrifice for the love of your kids. If you're married, maybe for the love of your spouse. If you walk in deep friendships, then you've sacrificed for your friendships. See, the, the church family life should be the same way. There should be this sacrifice that's happening. And, you know, for, for me, pastorally, it's been, uh, there's just been a, a journey of learning how to be a pastor. Like, I never, you know, it's not my plan, like, since I was, like, in fourth grade or anything like that. Like, there was, like, I was well into college and that kind of stuff, and, um, was doing the college ministry thing for a long time and didn't really make a smooth transition into like pastoring and stuff like that. And um, there's been a lot of people whose sacrifice was just letting me as their pastor like cut his teeth, you know, and just kind of learn to do some things. And um, we've been through a number of things as a church, but I, like I was preparing for the sermon and I was really thinking about the flood and, and how much, like, how much like sacrifice has been like 
it's just been like front and center for me and for, uh, and for you too, but I, I'm not here to talk about you. I'm here to talk about me. Uh, just kidding. But in my experience, um, the, it, it's like there's four big ingredients in this, in this thing for me. There's, uh, so I'm a, I'm, uh, a like lifelong Baton Rouge person who's from Central and is just familiar, basically just very familiar with everywhere that is flooded. Um, in, in terms of it being like a personal thing, like I've always felt called to be here, not moving anywhere, anything like that. Like this is home for me. And so it makes me mad when people make fun of it. Like, even though I'm, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's like one of those things. I'm like, hold on. Like, don't make fun of my city. So there's like the lifelong resident of like watching your like city go through this trauma. Um, The other, the second ingredient is my parents' house flooded. So I have that like watching my parents grieve my own like home that I lived in since the third or fourth grade. Uh, You know, there's like that whole thing, like how personally it hit home with me. Uh, the third thing was like you guys and your houses that flooded or your parents or your siblings and, and just like that kind of stuff. Um, and then the fourth thing are these like complete strangers that we do not know who have said, I don't have anyone to help me do this. Do you think your church could help? And so you go and you help them and you get connected to them. And so I have all these things like swirling together just with the flood. And you have your own list of things that are all swirling together with the flood. And you're like, okay, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And week one was different than week two, then week three, then week four. I mean, it's just been different. And it's not over with, but it's just morphed and changed. And So you have all that stuff. And then you have the fact that everything in life has continued to go on. Like, it's not like everything else shut down. They were like, tell you what, we'll put off uh, all your bills. We'll put off, like, and no one has to work for the next, you know, until everyone's rebuilt. Um, everything will be fine. Traffic will be great. Everything will be cool. The kids will be taken care of. Everything's fine. We'll even postpone the election so you don't have to worry about that for a while. Nothing is going to happen until Baton Rouge is rebuilt. No, none of that stopped. Everything else kept going, all the moving parts, all the personal drama, financial drama, family drama, all the things that are continuing to happen. All of that's just like, oh, just everywhere. And, and I find myself the same place that a lot of you do. We're like, okay, I have so much in front of me. There's just, and I only have so much time. I only have so much... Uh, so many resources, so many skills, so much know-how. Uh, I have all this responsibility and all this kind of stuff. I don't know what to do. And on the front end of the flood, I really felt like like it was going to be this like w- one big lesson in in the the two sermons I preached right after the flood. One on the parable of the talents, where God's going to be like, "Okay, you, I want you to steward this, and so you're either going to do really well and." You know, be a good steward, or you're going to bury it in the ground and be a terrible steward. Steward, um, and then the second thing of the good Samaritan, where it's going to be like, okay, here's a need, and you count the costs. Am I going to stop? Am I going to meet this need, or am I not going to meet this need? I thought it was going to be like this one big long lesson in that, but what I found to be the case is maybe what you found to be the case is that it is like an everyday thing. It's an everyday stewardship. It's an everyday good Samaritan thing. It's constantly having to come before God and say, God, there's all these things in front of me. What am I supposed to do with my Tuesday? You know? What am I supposed to do with my Wednesday? What am I supposed to do with my Saturday? I love Saturday, especially in the fall. What am I supposed to do with my, with my, what am I supposed to do with my Sunday? 
What am I supposed to do with the first part of my Monday? <laughs> you know, like it's so specific. And all I've known to do is to come before the Lord and say, I just need you to tell me. You know, what do I say no to so that I can say yes to? You know, how can I weigh that out? And so it's been like thousands of little stewardship moments. It's been thousands of little Good Samaritan moments. And probably like you, some I've gotten right and some I don't think I've gotten right. And I've learned from all of them. But if, we're t- if you're thinking of it in terms of like, okay, what am, I, what am I ready to sacrifice? When, this, when, I, when, when someone needs something, it could be a stranger, it could be a coworker, it could be a family member, it could be a, one, of your, one of your kids, it could be all of your kids, it could be someone in your community group, it could be your spouse, it could be yourself. When there is a need, what am I supposed to do with it? The posture, the posture of mind and heart has to be, okay, Jesus was self-sacrificing to his disciples. How can I love whoever that is in a, in a way that's willing to sacrifice whatever is needed? And will you help me to discern that? And will you help me to know how to say no to some other things? You know, like even down to how do I word this so that I can say yes to what you have for me? Well, we're in a covenant together. If you're a member, you're in a covenant that Jesus has empowered. And you're saying, well, I want to sacrifice for these folks. I don't know how to do it. And Jesus says, I'll help you. I'll help you fulfill your, your, like, your promises to one another. And if you can't meet that need, then there's probably someone else who can meet that need. And if everyone is, bringing, is coming before the Lord and saying, God, what do I do with my Tuesday? If everyone's doing that, like we all put our hands in the middle and said we would, then everything gets taken care of, you know? Then you don't stress about your Tuesday because you're just like, no, I just, I just need to, let me pray, let me pray and ask Jesus what to do. And it's not voices from heaven and that's not this big booming like response necessarily, but you'll just, you'll, he'll show you, you'll know. And so you say no to some things, you say yes to some things, and then if it's the wrong thing, then you just learn from that and then you keep going, like we just all keep going. And so if that's the kind of community that you want to be a part of, that's the kind of family that you want to be a part of, um, then that's who Jesus wants to continue to make us into more and more. People who are present, people who are full of grace and full of truth, people who are, have made promises that they know he empowers, but they have to put some effort into, and people who are just ready to sacrifice, and who are, who are just very quick to say, Jesus, you tell me what to do, and I'll, I'll do it. I'll give up whatever so that I can be obedient to you in this. And we collectively will work together to whatever. Rebuild the city? Okay. Help struggling marriages? Okay. Be with a family in crisis? Okay. Walk with an individual through something that's just awful? Okay. And then all the good stuff too. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. And those four things, that's just a drop in the bucket from what we see. But isn't it awesome to know that the, the model for this, this kind of interaction is like his spirit dwells within you? That's, that's what he's telling them. Like, hey, I'm about to go away, and it's for your good, because then the spirit's going to come, and you'll always know what to do if you just listen and ask. 
And so as we step to the communion table, a part of what we're remembering is like, look how far Jesus was willing to go for us. Look at how much grace and truth is in that. Look how much presence is there in this. And look at these covenant promises and look at how much he was ready to sacrifice so that we could live in the fullness of who he's made us to be. It's it's amazing. And so we're going to take communion and we're going to line up and do do the thing that we do. And if if you're a believer, I would invite you to be a part of that. And if you are not a believer in Jesus, uh, I'd like to talk to you about that before you leave because you don't have to wonder. And we cycle through here and some people are going to come down here and pray and that's up to you. And some of you may not want to come and take communion. You just might want to stay where you are and sing. We're going to take a few minutes and this this is time with the Lord because when we bless each other and we go, you know what's waiting for you. But the call to love one another as Jesus loved us begins with us looking at how he loved us. So I hope that's an encouragement to you. Um, I hope that our time together is always breathing life into wherever you are. So how about you stand together? I'm going to pray for us. Emmett and Tara Brown are going to come and serve communion for us tonight. They'll be down front as uh, community group leaders. Invited all the community group leaders to serve communion if they would like to. And so... Uh, They'll be down here tonight. I'm going to pray for us as we kind of just prepare to enter into this closing time. So would you pray with me? God, um, I'm thankful for for an example that is so clear. There's just no, um, no mystery with Jesus in terms of how he loved people. Thankful for the ways... God, that you display your character and your goodness through, uh, through the way we see Jesus love everyone, especially his disciples. And our call to do that with one another in these ways and so many more. I pray that you would not let us be intimidated by that, but to feel free. The very, the very things that were uh, inhibiting us and, and restraining us from being able to live in this kind of fullness... Jesus, you freed us from that bondage. And so we celebrate tonight by singing and by praying and by uh, stepping to the the table where you're offering us your body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins, freeing us to live this kind of life together. And so we know that we can't do this of our own efforts, and we've all tried. And uh, So would you use these simple acts, these deep, but simple acts of worship and, uh, and prayer to encourage us, to spur us on, to cause us to re-examine our commitments to one another. Most importantly, our commitments to you. For it's from, from your love that we're able to love each other. So thank you, God, for the reminder of the body and the blood that's represented before us. And, we love you very much. So as we respond, may you just have your way in this room. We love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The communion table is open. You can step forward whenever you want. If you want to come and pray or just stand and sing, let's just respond uh, in faith and in obedience.